Hello, today oncologist Dr. Akash Maniam and I discuss medicine. Now, there are two types of medicine, homeopathic and allopathic. When you hear homeopathic, what comes to mind? You think natural, less invasive treatment, might even be cheaper. You think calming, you think friendly treatments. Allopathic, you think Western medicine, you think pharmaceuticals, you think cost, you think about treatments that are strong and robust. And of course, based on discussions we've had before, you think about clinical trials. Well, at least some of us do. Now, there are polarizing views and opinion about homeopathic and allopathic treatment, which is why we've decided to go with this topic today. Now, this episode is not intended to be offensive. It is a discussion about concerns related to both treatments. Uh, This has been on the minds of many people. Maybe you're thinking it right now. Maybe in your experience, this has come up in your personal interactions with family or with your doctor. Why can't Western medicine and alternative medicine work together so that we can enjoy better quality health? See, it's a legit question. And that's really what we want to discuss today. Now, Dr. Akash Maniam is a clinical director of the Caribbean Cancer Research Institute. Dr. Maniam, I'm pretty sure that in your practice and in your interactions with patients, you've come across uh, some of these concerns. Only a few hundred or so. (laughs) Especially in the Caribbean um, and in, let's say, Asian, Latin American and African context, it it is very common to hear questions about I wouldn't say homeopathic treatments in their own right, but anything that's a bit more traditional. Because as we know, in Asian cultures, in Caribbean cultures, and African cultures, there is a long history of traditional medicine and traditional treatments. And I think we're going to frame this discussion around the evidence and around what we have. It is not supposed to be a confrontational type thing, but the term allopathic for me doesn't really help uh, because it, it just doesn't sound appealing. It doesn't sound natural. Whereas when we hear homeopathic, it, it, it's something that I think we all resonate a bit more naturally with. So how would you define homeopathy and allopathy? I will say this. Homeopathy is a small part of traditional medicine. It is one type of what we call complementary or alternative or traditional forms of medicine, where you're using small doses of some sort of chemical that in a large amount would cause symptoms of the disease. That is a strict definition of homeopathy. Allopathy is what people would more commonly call conventional medicine or Western medicine or whatever term you would like to use. But that would be your more commonly seen, you know, blood pressure medications, diabetes medications, cancer medications, etc. What we're all very familiar with. The thing is, when people talk about homeopathy, the belief is essentially like curing likes. As we said, using a small amount of something that in large quantities would cause the disease symptoms itself. So the rule is that you use the smallest dose possible to try and help um, whatever disease you're you're looking to treat, whether it's breast cancer or high blood pressure or diabetes. And people who believe in homeopathic medicine would think that essentially you're starting the process of self-healing within the body. You're causing some sort of reaction. And homeopathic remedies are usually made from minerals or plants or sometimes even animal substances. You dilute them in water until there's a very small amount of that substance. And then you make it into a drop or a tablet or a cream and you give it to someone. So as an oncologist, what would you say is your greatest challenge when it comes to alternative treatment or homeopathic treatment? 
Now, the general thing is there is no real evidence to say that homeopathic medicine works, certainly as far as cancer is concerned, which is what we're talking about. There isn't any robust data to say that it works. And to me, that is the most critical thing. It doesn't mean that herbal medicine or other forms of traditional medicine are bad or one should disregard them. It just, for me, it reflects the process by which they emerged. When we, when we talk about cancer treatments, especially in light of the discussions we've had on clinical trials, we know that they've been tested. We know that they've been used in thousands and thousands of patients around the world. We have a good idea of how much to give, how often to give it, what the expected side effects are, the common and the rare, and we know how well it works. We don't have that sort of evidence with homeopathic treatments, and by extension with many traditional treatments. So like in Trinidad, we may use herbal remedies, whether it's, you know, moringa or soursop or, you know, molasses and baking soda or a few other things that we hear. None of these have been tested to that level. That is where the concern is. There are some alternative treatments, some traditional treatments that are very useful and that are very useful in patients with cancer, especially alongside conventional medicine. For instance, acupuncture has been proven in several different health conditions to be beneficial, but it doesn't mean it's beneficial for everybody all the time. Simple things like massage therapy, relaxation therapy, these things have been very useful. So it's not to say that traditional therapy doesn't have a place. It definitely has a place. We just need to see it tested in the same way. As long as we can get that level of evidence from anything, to be perfectly honest, it would be much better if we could treat cancer patients with herbal remedies and things that we can grow in our gardens, things that are cheap, things that are widely available than expensive pharmaceuticals. That would be amazing if we could do it. So if we could somehow prove that these, these compounds have the same level of impact as conventional therapies, I'd be very happy to recommend them to people. The concern we have is in the lack of data. So we don't know how much to use. We don't know how often to use it. We don't know if it even works, if there's any evidence that it makes things better. We don't know how it interacts with your body because most things are broken down either by the kidney or the liver, so we don't know if it can damage a kidney or damage the liver. We don't know how it interacts with cancer treatment, which are often competing for the same different things, and they will also be broken down by those same organs. And in turn, we don't know if by interacting it makes the cancer treatments less effective or more toxic. So it really does make things very challenging when we're using things that are not proven. It's very different than saying, you know, eating sawasop or popple, or fruits and vegetables, etc. All of those things would always be good. It's different to say, let me eat a much larger quantity of this, or let me boil the leaves, make tea, and drink large quantities of it. That is where we're starting to run into trouble because we don't know anything about the safety or efficacy of it. So the standard advice would be to be very cautious about those things, whereas trying meditation or yoga or even acupuncture or things like this, they're very unlikely to do someone harm. So it's, it's not really an issue for people to recommend them. But when it comes to using compounds, mm -hmm. that is when we as physicians have, you know, issues with the field of homeopathic medicine. Right, because that is, that is you're ingesting something. You're actually putting something in your body. You're ingesting something. And the thing is, a physician or an oncologist prescribes a cancer drug. That physician is licensed to pr practice, licensed to prescribe that medication, and is accountable to a regulatory body. 
So if you're prescribing something in the wrong dose or you're doing the wrong things and something goes wrong, you are accountable to a body, to an organization for what you have done. With homeopathic medicine, etc., you don't have that level of scrutiny. You don't have that level of accountability, that level of oversight in the main. And if you look at systems, say in the UK or in Trinidad, you go to the public sector, you see your oncologist, you have your treatment for free. There is no financial incentive for them. They will just prescribe what they think is best according to national guidelines, according to international guidelines, according to accepted practice within the field. With homeopathy, there is often a financial element because often these are private practitioners who would charge money for the consultation, charge money for the treatment. And it's not to say that seeing someone privately is bad. That's not, that's not the point. It's just if your doctor is telling you to take something and there is no cost attached to it, there is a bit more trust that what they're saying is genuinely what they think is the best thing for you. Okay, then what about generational evidence? You know, the, the folk believes in the knowledge passed on from generation to generation. I, this has come up in conversations before. I consumed this product and my parents consumed it in their days and they, they consumed it because their parents uh, used to take it. Nobody in my family, well, in this case, we talk about cancer. Nobody in my family afflicted with this and uh, we're in good health and we don't rely on anything else. So what are your thoughts on that kind of, of generational wisdom? And, and it exists here in Trinidad and Tobago, as you would know. That's honestly a very difficult one. Mm-hmm. Because we know that in some societies, like ours, cultural wisdom, cultural experience is very important. We take, we take what our elders say very seriously. We take what our community members would say very seriously, our religious and spiritual leaders, etc., That is not a bad thing by any means. But when it comes to treating cancer or treating illness, we need to separate everything and everyone from the data. We need to make it impersonal in that regard and just focus on what the evidence is. When it comes to things like how to cope with cancer diagnosis, how to cope with stress, how to cope with these things, that is definitely where traditional wisdom and traditional support and everything else comes into play in a very big way. When it comes to knowing whether drug actual work for this type of cancer. We really need to separate that from the data. The thing is, everyone will have a story about how someone they knew beat cancer or did something else or didn't do this or took cancer cancer treatment and died, etc. To me, it neglects the, the individual circumstances of their case. Some people have different cancers, different stages. They've had different chemo drugs or different cancer drugs in different doses. So obviously they have different experiences. On a personal level, they may may be of different age, different gender, they have different health issues, they have different metabolism, and fundamentally their cancer is also different. So even if you have two women of the same age, or twins with breast cancer, let's say, same type of breast cancer and on the same treatment, their experiences are not going to be identical because their tumors will change and their metabolisms are different. So when you're drawing the experience of one other person or a couple of other people and then applying the same logic to someone else, that is when things become dangerous. Because with trials and data, we are not perfect. And we never claim to be. But as you can say, look, a thousand people had it. 700 people did this. 200 people did this. 100 people did this. So at least it helps us to fill in some of the gap. But when you're relying on information from people about one case or two cases, 
there's just way too much that could be down to chance to make a reliable uh, judgment. It's a bit like if someone went to one place uh, and they ate food there and they had food poisoning or an upset stomach after, but 900 other people didn't have that when they went on the same night to the same place. When that person goes home, they're going to tell their family and tell everyone, don't eat there, I got sick. But then their family members might go there tomorrow and have no bad experiences at all. But if a 1,000 people went and 700 people got food poisoning, yeah, you might be in the 300, but you'll be a lot more skeptical of the place. They'd say, well, 70% of the people here got food poisoning. This is a red flag. Mm -hmm. And that is all that we're talking about. That's the difference in data and anecdotal experiences that people have. It doesn't diminish them. We just need to put them in the right context. That's all we're trying to say. Well, I sense this topic continuing in another episode because time is limited and I have lots of questions for you. But I want to raise this with you, Dr. Maniam, before we conclude. You and I have just had a discussion about homeopathy and allopathy and different types of treatments, the challenges. And this, I have to say, was a solid discussion. But... This is a discussion not many patients are able to have with their doctors. And I'm referring to conventional doctors. Because there are doctors who are very difficult to talk to. I've had this experience before. I know people listening have experienced it as well. There's a certain level of of, um, ignorance that comes when a patient wants to discuss something that is alternative. You don't necessarily want to use alternative treatment. You just want more information. But there are doctors who just refuse to have that conversation. They shut it down immediately. And that damages the trust that a patient has in their doctor. And when that happens, you push away that patient and they probably go online to get information that might not always be with the best intention or they just, um, you know, dump the whole process altogether. And that is also quite damaging. So what's your advice for, for patients or for listeners who have had that experience? Entirely fair. And I think, look, uh, as a community of physicians, we don't want to be patronizing. So I completely understand the fear of judgment or the fear of criticism or the fear of any negative expression when it comes to discussing these things. And if you discuss these things with your physician and your physician reacts negatively and tells you that you're stupid or that you shouldn't do it, etc., that is entirely wrong. It's entirely inappropriate. We can recommend to stop something. We can recommend against something. We can recommend for something. But it should be at least a conversation where we discuss the pros and cons, the doubt and the data. But ultimately, as a patient, it's up to you to decide what you want to do, what you want to put in your body. That is entirely your choice. We just want to try and support that choice and inform patients of what is out there, what the data says. And that's it. The right decision is the one that the patient reaches after weighing up everything and considering the pros and cons. It's not what the doctor tells you to do. It's what the doctor discusses with you. You've absorbed, you've understood, and then you've decided for yourself after all of that what you think is right. And mm-hmm. that, is, that, is the, that is a key thing. So we're talking about vaccines, we're talking about clinical trials, we're talking about herbal treatments, etc. <laughs> it is okay for patients and doctors to have strong views on that. But we should at least have those conversations together and try to have that dialogue rather than confronting each other about it. So that will at least help patients to trust us more and to be open with us more. Uh, because ultimately we're sharing responsibility for hopefully a good outcome. 
Thank you so much, oncologist Dr. Akash Maniam, who is practicing in the UK. He's also clinical director at the Caribbean Cancer Research Institute. Now, there you have access to a number of services, including a telehealth service. You have questions, you have concerns, you need someone to listen. You can access that kind of service with the CCRI. So, Dr. Maniam, as we wrap up, just share with our listeners how they can get in touch with the Caribbean Cancer Research Institute. Absolutely right. All you have to do is go to our website, ccrinstitute.com, and you can reach us, you can message us, you can call, you can email. All of the contact information is there. You can ask questions about your cancer journey, you know, treatment, diagnosis, etc. Things that you might have wanted to ask your physician, but you just didn't have time for. Things that you might just have forgotten in the heat of the moment and in a difficult and stressful environment, whether it's talking about your chemotherapy or radiotherapy or surgery or really just you're just worried or scared and you just want information. We have a team of people who are there. We'll be happy to support you through it. Just reach out to us and we'll be happy to help.